Welcome to another episode of a special podcast we like to call From the Archives. These are hand-picked sermons and sermon series preached in our church over the years by some of the pastors, elders, and special guests we've had the privilege of listening to. We hope and we pray that as we listen to these classic messages, we'll be challenged in our walk with Jesus and encouraged to trust in him more and more. That being said, let's dive into the episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of From the Archives here at Amford Evangelical Church. And I'm afraid to say you're going to have to listen to my voice once again. Yep, episode five, uh, part five in our Encouraged series in 1 Thessalonians is yours truly taking a look at the topic of work. Um, and work is a, is a funny thing, isn't it? Sometimes we love it, sometimes we hate it. Very often we experience a measure of those two things at the one time. Um, And so in this message, just kind of unpacking a theology of work, why it is something that we both love and hate. Before moving on to think about the issues um, or topic of reputation, uh, ambition and glorifying God, is it possible for Christians to seek a reputation and to glorify God in that In the end, uh, this episode, this podcast is really all about um, not whether we can find spiritual work to do, but how we can do the work we have spiritually, how we can glorify and honour God through that. So I should shut up and let you get on with listening to me, Sammy Davis, in this sermon. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It's short enough, I'll read it again. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. What a great title for a sermon that would be, Mind Your Own Business. Uh, it's not. Uh, we're looking at encouraged to work because that's what Paul is doing to the Thessalonian church there. He's encouraging them to work. Um, but when I was thinking this week, um, what generally do we think about work? The phrase or the quote that jumped out of me is, is quite a famous uh, quote by a guy called Confucius. And he said this, find something that you love to do And you'll never have to do another day's work in your life. Find something that you love to do, and you'll never have to do another day's work in your life. And what a lovely idea that is, isn't it? As we we labor sometimes, as we toil in our respective jobs, the day-to-day, the rat race for some, um, wearying physical labor for others, the unavoidably necessary things that we have to do every single day, the prospect kind of the promise that Confucius makes to to leave that all behind. Do something you love and never have to work another day in your life. That's that's appetizing, isn't it? That's enticing. To jettison this yoke of work and to fill our time just doing what we truly love. It's, It's a lovely idea. Perhaps it's something that you aspire to do. But here's a question. Is he right? Is he right? 
Or does his famous quote actually, actually portray a misunderstanding at the very core of what work is? The very concept of work. Because if we misunderstand work, which is a reality in all of our lives, then that can have pretty big uh, impact and it can make our Christian lives very difficult. You see, in Confucius' eyes, and all of us who secretly agree with him and dream of that kind of workless life, the very concept of having to work is a negative, isn't it? Otherwise, why would we, he be suggesting a way of getting rid of it? If having to work, if you're having to work, something has gone wrong. And, and I think we often agree with him and we feel like that. But in today's passage, Paul is pretty clear that he wants the Christians in Thessalonica to work, to mind their own business and to work hard. I think, as a general rule, we have a love-hate relationship with our work. We have a love-hate relationship. There are times when we're doing things, we're doing jobs, we're doing tasks, and we can't believe our luck. You're doing something, you think, do you know, I'm getting paid to do this. I get to do this. There's no kind of feeling of having to do it. You just think, I get to do it. And that's wonderful. Some people, that's their entire existence, and hallelujah, praise God for that. Other times, we're doing things, and we ask the question, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done so wrong that I'm being punished that every day I've got to do this, or that this job has landed on my desk, or what have you? And for some of us, that's a reality, and well, you know, praise God for that as well. Um, We probably know someone who's always going on about how much they enjoy their work, secretly judging them. We know somebody who's always complaining about their work, secretly pitying them. Um, We have this love-hate relationship with work, don't we? What's amazing, I think, is that when we come to the Bible, that is exactly what we expect to see. What the Bible teaches us about work teaches us that we should have a love-hate relationship with work. So let's go back. Before Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonian church, let's go back, all the way back, right to the beginning, and to see if we can clear up some misconceptions that we often have about work as this purely negative thing that we should get rid of from our lives. Picture the scene. You're in the garden. God's perfect creation has just been, well, nearly completed. The cherry on the top has been placed in the garden. Mankind, Adam, is there. And God comes to Adam, and we read this in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We see right from the very start that some kind of form of physical work is what God had intended for his man. Uh, It's not just physical labor, though. In a few verses, you read this. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. The work that man, Adam, was given wasn't just physical labor, but it was kind of artistic as well. He had this job of coming up with a name for everything that God had made. And what's important to see is that all that takes place before the fall. All that takes place before the fall. If you'd like to kind of change a common phrase, you could say that work cometh before the fall, couldn't you? That is actually what man was made for, to work physically and artistically. And God saw that and he said that it was good. Work wasn't 
a dirty word. By no means. It was part of God's wonderful, unblemished creation. To be in paradise, to be in Eden, was to be at work. That's pretty clear. But there's more to it even than that. There's more to it even than that. Because to be a worker, when we look at the very beginning, is intrinsically linked to human beings being image bearers of God. Chapter 1 of Genesis says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish and the birds and everything that moves on the ground. Can you see that when God is thinking and, and speaking about making us in his image, part of that is us having work, ruling, subduing, multiplying, filling. And that makes sense, really, that part of our Having God's image means that we are workers because what we see and what we find out about God in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is that he's a working God. It's not a dirty word because it's something we can associate with God. Think about the act of creating itself that we read there. God had proven himself to be a worker. And if you don't believe me, you don't like that phraseology, well, look at the Sabbath day rest genesis 2 verse 2 it says by the seventh day god had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work and then god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done god's a worker we're made in god's image as workers and part of paradise is to be at work so work isn't a dirty word hallelujah We can find something that we love to do, Confucius, and we can work every single day for the rest of our lives. Praise God. From physical to artistic, it's it's all there. Working is part of God's perfect creation and an aspect of our being image bearers of him. Yet, if that's the whole story, most of us from our day-to-day lives would say there's there's something not right. Because while that sounds wonderful and looks wonderful in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that does not usually match up with how I feel about work. I don't always go into work or I don't always do the jobs that I've got to do and think, oh, this completes me. At last I feel at one with God, so like him because I'm doing my work. The reality is a lot of the times we find work hard. We have terrible bosses. Our drill bits break. Our shift patterns are horrendous. So many different things that make work hard. So if that's the whole story, that work is wonderful, it's given before the fall, and and it makes us um, a part of our image bearing of God, then we've got to admit that there's a disconnect. But that's not the whole story. Let's continue the story. You're no longer in the perfect paradise that God calls good, but we're standing before God in judgment. Adam and Eve... um, uh, are having judgment passed on them for the fall, for the, for the sin of, of, of replacing God in their lives. And as God is pronouncing the curses on Adam and Eve, he's, he's pronouncing uh, further curses on the rest of creation as well. And he says this in chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Work is good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God, he's a worker. We see that work is good, yet it is tinged. It is tainted. It is blemished by sin. And it is cursed by God. It's part of the curse, God's judgment on all of creation and especially on mankind for our rebellion. No longer simply tending a garden uh, and and yielding crops uh, simply. But hard, hard labor, thorns and thistles, sweat and tears. Now all of a sudden when we look to the Bible and how it describes work, it starts to match up with our experience of it, doesn't it? Sometimes we do feel fulfilled. Sometimes we do feel completed in it. But sometimes it's just hard. It's a hard slog and it makes us sweat and sometimes it makes us cry. It's, it's love, it's hate, it's all those things mixed together. But here's the first important lesson before we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Work isn't bad. Work isn't bad. Work is good. But as a result of the fall, work is hard. Work sometimes is painful. Okay, we've got that cleared up out of the way. Um, so Paul is writing to Thessalonians and he's teaching them loads of things. He's, he's encouraging them to remember who they are in Christ. He's, he's encouraging them to, to love one another and to grow in that. He's, he's reminding them about the truth about what happens to Christians when they die and, and waiting for Christ to come back. And then you just get these two seemingly random verses out of nowhere. You're not really expecting them. Quite abrupt. Mind your own business. Um, work hard. Why is it, do you think, that Paul feels the need in this letter, and actually in the second letter to the Thessalonians, he has to write about this again, and, and he spends more time on it. Why do you think he feels the need to write to them and remind them, do you know what, guys? Work. Work hard. Don't be idle. Look after yourselves. To my mind, the context suggests the most obvious answer is this. Because they were so confused about the second coming, because they they didn't really understand what was going on and there was this prevalent teaching maybe that Christ was coming back even tomorrow, they just thought, why bother working? Christ is coming back tomorrow, why bother working? And you can kind of understand that logic, can't you? If Christ is coming back this evening, then why bother going out to work? Yet, I'm still hungry at lunchtime, so if you've got spare apple, I'll have it. You can kind of understand that, can't you? Well, Christ is coming back tonight, so there's no point in me going out and doing my job. But I'm still kind of hungry, so I still need you to look after me if you've got enough to go around. Yet Paul's clear with them. You won't know when Christ is returning. You can be certain that he is returning, but our second coming Advent calendars don't have a numbered doors that we know counting down the days to his return. Instead, he encourages them to live in the light of Christ's inevitable return. We continue to live, giving up work, as many of them apparently were doing. They were really just giving up living, weren't they? They were hardly living at all. They're just holding on, waiting. To my mind, that's the most obvious answer about why they were being lazy, why they weren't working. There are other answers you could possibly give. Perhaps some suggest, it's quite likely to also be true, but they didn't want to work anymore. Because they saw the workers beneath them. 
But somehow, as Christians now, they were enlightened to, to, they were more in tune with the universe and the things that were going on. And they just thought, you know what, a lot of the work that's available to us is beneath us. I don't want to get involved with that. Perhaps that's why Paul uses this phrase, mind your own business and work with your hands. Because in the Greek culture that they lived in, any kind of physical labor was commonly seen as beneath people. It was kind of slaves' work. If it was hard work, if it required your hands and muscles and sweat, then it's something the slave should be doing, not the enlightened Christian gentleman. Perhaps that's why they weren't working. Perhaps, and this is a really crazy guess now as to why they weren't working, they weren't working because they were lazy. Imagine that. Imagine people just being lazy. Actually, I can imagine it. Actually, I can relate to it. Sometimes I feel like I'm genetically predisposed to be lazy. Um, Lazy people generally, you'll never find them working harder than when they're trying to find a shortcut. You know, if there's, if there's a corner that can be cut, they will try and cut it. Perhaps they've kind of gotten wind of this idea that maybe there are wealthier brothers and sisters in the church who, through God's grace, now were inclined to show grace to others, especially those less fortunate than themselves. And they're thinking, well, if I don't do any work, it doesn't really matter because Lord Jeffrey, you know, the well-off Christian guy I go to church with, he's just going to feel obliged to help me out, isn't he? It doesn't matter. I've read that bit in Galatians when Paul teaches us clearly, therefore, as you have opportunity, do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. It kind of makes sense from a lazy person's point of view. If we're supposed to be gracious and kind to one another and -and so-and-so's got enough money to look after us both, then I'll, I'll just not bother. I'll relax. I'll take it easy. He'll just step in and pay. The truth is, we don't actually know precisely why there was this problem of laziness in uh, Thessalonica, why there was idle people kicking around. Um, As I've mentioned, for me, my best guess is that they had this misunderstanding about Christ's return, but there's, there's any number of reasons that could have caused them to be lazy. And you know what? I think that uncertainty is helpful for us today because actually there's a multitude of reasons why we might be lazy, why we might be idle, why we might be tempted to think, you know what? Work is not for me. I'm just going to let somebody else take care of me. We don't know. And I think that's helpful because I think it helps us to apply it to any and every reason we might give not to work, not to work hard. If I will for a moment, though, I'll I'll just make this point. There is one reason we know it wasn't that Paul was getting on people's backs. There is one reason we know it wasn't. He wasn't telling them to stop being lazy just because they were unable to work. It's, It's important to see that he here is teaching about people who are unwilling to work. And there's a big difference between unwilling and unable. There's a world of difference. Whether it's physical, mental impairment, perhaps a lack of job opportunities, Paul isn't targeting those people who are unable to work here. In his second letter, um, where he spends more time on this, he, he reiterates his teaching like this. He says, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's, a, that's very different to the one who is unable to work. Um, you know, 
he's speaking to lazy people, to idle people, not to those who have been interviewed for 20 jobs and still no avail. Not for the ones who through ill health or disability are simply unable to work. I mean, mixed in 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 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 that we're reading there, um, John's going to be covering this passage next week, chapter 5, verse 14. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and destructive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. He's not saying Christians shouldn't be gracious, shouldn't be kind, shouldn't be generous to those who can't work. But he's saying those who can, should. And even in chapter 4, the context of the instruction to mind your own business and work hard with your hands, he says right before, the love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. So please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying this morning to be targeting people who are unable to work. This is for the people who are able to work and choose not to. Or or those of us who have that inclination in our heart just to be lazy, just to coast, just to kind of glide through life. And actually, the lesson then that he teaches those of us who are idle, those of us who are tempted to um, kind of put work off, is this. And, And it's a paradox Um, You see it there in verse 11. He says, work hard to go unnoticed. That's the lesson. Work hard to go unnoticed. You might not see that. That's the Sammy paraphrase. In the NIV, it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, that's a paradox. Because most of the time, we connect ambition with something more than having a quiet life, going unnoticed. Um, We connect ambition usually to be something with fame. Power, authority, wealth. Aspiration is something that we're usually wanting something greater than that which we already have. Yet Paul is saying, you know, in your work, aspire for, aim for a quiet life. A life that's not all about you. Work hard, but don't work hard so that you can climb the ladder. Don't work hard so that you can gather glory and fame for yourself. Don't work hard so that when you shout jump, you'll have an army of people who will respond how high. Work hard so that there's no drama. Work hard for a quiet life. And that's quite an extraordinary statement to make. How can Paul encourage such a thing? How can Paul encourage people to work hard yet to expect just simple rewards? You know, the the reward that he suggests is that you'll, you'll, you'll have enough to look after yourselves if you work hard. Well, we've looked at work as being something given by God, as good. We've seen that it's a a thing that's made hard and tinged by sin. But we haven't yet considered how work as a thing has been redeemed and renewed by Jesus Christ, have we? And and here's what I think is is going on. How um, the gospel, how Christ changes how we view work. Ambition, work. They're very often me-centered things, aren't they? I work so that I can eat. I work so that I can have money to spend. Or a job title on a plaque on my desk that I can be proud of. Or a team of people, as I said, who when I shout jump, they scream how high. Work and ambition are very often me, me, me. 
Even when we're being slightly altruistic about it, even when we're thinking of others, usually that only goes as far as our immediate family. Okay? So it's not all about me, 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 but it is about me and my family. I work hard so that my kids can have certain things, my spouse can enjoy certain holiday and privileges and things like that. Now, they're not necessarily a bad thing. They're not. Of course, we want our kids to have things. Of course, we want to have more money so we can treat people who we love. But Paul says, work hard so that you won't depend on anyone else, that you'll have food to eat, that you'll be self-sufficient, yes. Work hard so that your family is taken care of. But don't just work hard for your own glory, for your own fame, for your own reputation. Work hard for a quiet life as only someone who has been redeemed can do. Now, let me unpack that idea because here's what Jesus achieves through the cross. Um, part of what Jesus achieves through the cross, through his life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension. He conquers and defeats all sin, okay? We're agreed on that, aren't we? Sin, which had tainted work, and, and if you like, changed the motto of work to me first. Work is about me first. That's how uh, naturally through sin we shout out and, and, and march to the beat of the me first drum. Yet Jesus' um, work, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin, which we often think about it. It, it frees us from the power of sin as well, doesn't it? It fee- frees us from that ability that sin has to twist our nature and twist our desires. It means that we can live not to the motto of me first in any area of our lives, especially in work. But it means that we can live to the motto of others first. God first. When Jesus conquers sin, he doesn't just conquer the penalty, he conquers the power as well, and then he changes our hearts, our attitudes, and our desires. Ultimately, I'm saying Jesus Christ sets us free from selfishness. We are, through sin, selfish people, and that means when we work, we use work selfishly, yet Christ sets us free from that. Christ allows us to work hard for a quiet life. That's not all about me. Sin defeated, it allows us to say no to me first and yes to others first and God first. And when we have that motto, when we have that attitude, no longer me and I centered, but God and other centered, we're freed from thinking that work is all about me. That the labor and the graft and the toil that I put in are purely and simply for my benefit, for my reward. And that's, that's hugely liberating. There's only someone who's been redeemed by Christ who can actually say that. It means that as Christians, we can actually look at certain work and think, you know what, there's benefit there for others. And we can look at any and all work, work that we might once have thought was beneath us, and we can see the genuine value in it again. Because it's not about me and my reputation. You know, some jobs that we just think are beneath us, there's so many jobs in our society, so much work in our society that we think culturally socially are beneath us when you think of the jobs that we um fill in our country through those who come through immigration you know it's fine for them to do those jobs but not for us not for us native brits we don't want to do those jobs i think there's a very real danger that we turn unpaid work into something that's beneath us well, I'm, I'm only going to do the job. I'm only going to do the work if, it, if I'm going to get financially rewarded. I'm financially rewarded well about it. Now, I'm not saying as Christians we should all go out there and start working for less than minimum wage. But what I'm thinking about there is areas in our lives, work that we do for 
other people where we're not going to get rewarded. Helping out our friends, our family, our neighbors. There I say it, raising our own children. You know, we like to think that we live in an, an enlightened society where women can choose whether they stay at home or go out. But the truth is, we don't live in an enlightened society where people can choose. We live in a society in an order that's cultured that demands that everyone of adult age in a home is out to work. We've robbed ourselves of that choice. And actually, sometimes when people are brave enough to step up and make the choice to stay home and raise a family, which is unpaid work, people look at us and think, oh, that's a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? That's a bit fuddy-duddy. Oh, I wonder what, what he's kind of forcing on her there in that city, you know. And we have all these kind of thoughts. There is work that we think in our society, in our culture, maybe even in our church, that we think is beneath us because we've got a high view of ourselves. And everything we want to do, we want to say, me first. But Jesus Christ comes in. He lives, he dies, he rises again. And one of the things he achieves is he shows us really our proper place. It's not all about us. It's not all me first. But it can be God first and others first. And actually, if we know that Christ is coming back and that when he returns, we are going to be with him in paradise again, paradise regained, then actually our thought process as Christians should be that actually we've got an eternity of work ahead of us. Now that betrays our view of work, I think. If I'm telling you today that we've got an eternity of work ahead of us, most of us are thinking, oh, that's a shame. I didn't really want to have... 70 years of work ahead of me, you know. I wanted to retire by the time I was 45 or 50. But now you're telling me something I'm going to have to work through all eternity as well. This isn't a good deal. It's because we've got a misunderstanding of what work is, of the goodness of work and what God has given us to do. Okay, let me uh, wrap this up then. Um, Hands up who here has ever visited the Sistine Chapel? How many people? I haven't. I've only ever seen it on TV slash on the computer. Um, what is it that makes the Sistine Chapel so famous? Some One person who's been, let us know, the Sistine Chapel is... John, you've been there. It's, it's painted. And no offense to Carol, to a slightly grander scale, okay? You could do it. Oh, sweet, yeah, brilliant. We'll have that. We'll be, yeah, well, yeah okay. <laughs> But we'll be able to charge for tourists then as well. Um, the Sistine Chapel is the chapel in Rome, in the Vatican. Wow, look at me, I know. Um, that has got that amazing roof, huge ceiling that it was painted by Michelangelo. Is that right? I should have looked this up, shouldn't I? I'm just going, uh, uh, it's one of those moments when you're going to say something out loud in public and you think, wow, I could really be shown to be ignorant here, couldn't I? Um, Michelangelo, okay, few, not the turtle, the artist. Um, and it's done on this amazingly grand scale. Uh, and, and, and the bit of the ceiling that everyone knows and that everyone remembers, whether they've been there or not, is the, the, the point where God is reaching out to Adam and Adam is reaching back out to God, and their fingertips are about to touch. That's kind of like the, the jewel in the Sistine Chapel crown. Um, if you look at it in person, or if you look it up on the internet, you'll see that there's so much more going on there than that. But that's the bit that sticks in everybody's mind. Now, here's my question. What is it that brings glory and fame to Michelangelo in that ceiling? 
In our minds, very often we'll think it's just that scene, Adam and God, fingers touching. But actually, it's the whole work coming together which truly shows us how great an artist, how great a master Michelangelo was. There are thousands upon thousands of tiny brushstrokes. Sometimes we'll think that they're insignificant, that if they weren't there, the whole work would be spoiled. The whole ceiling would not be a masterpiece if he'd only painted that one tiny square inch section. Indeed, if he'd have neglected any part of it, we'd have said, yeah, it's not that, not that great, Michael. Um, and so it is, so it is with the church and the people of God. We bring glory to God through how we act, through how we speak, through how we work. The problem is sometimes when we think about our lives and our work lives especially as bringing glory to God, we think about very specific niche tasks or jobs. We think, well, full-time evangelist, that brings glory to God. But a receptionist, how does that bring glory to God? Or we think a pastor who week in, week out stands up to preach God's word, that brings glory to God. But me, the unemployed person who volunteers somewhere else, that can't bring glory to God, can it? And like the Sistine Chapel where we focus in on that one point, sometimes we have this temptation to say, if in our work lives we're going to bring glory to God, we focus in on very specific tasks. And we end up ignoring so much of our own lives and so much of the life of the church. God is glorified through all of our work. All of our work. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that actually, okay, if work is something that doesn't need to be me-centered, but can be God-centered and other-centered, therefore I need to change the type of work I'm doing. That's not what Paul says. He says just work hard for a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. You learn a reputation. So let me uh, finish with these encouraging words from Paul on this line. He's writing in different contexts to different churches, but I think the words that he uses apply nonetheless. Um, help us to see how there is no secular, sacred, kind of paid, unpaid, glamorous, dull, divide in work that can be translated into glorifying God. He says, just do it all well without a fuss. Not for us, but for him. Hopefully you know these words, Colossians chapter 3, he says, whatever you do in word or do deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yeah, pretty obvious. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, he says, so where, a totally different context, but the, the concept the same, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The question we should ask when we look to the work that we have is not, what else can I be doing that perhaps might bring more glory to God? Something a little bit more spiritual, something that's a little bit more obviously God-glorifying. But rather, the question we should be asking is this. In this work, where I am, how can I be doing it more spiritually? And the very unspiritual answer is, work hard. Work hard at the work that God has given you. The answer is that no matter what we're doing, we can do it for the glory of God, which means working hard for him above all else. 
And there is actually, according to Paul, a wonderful result to this. When we work hard in all areas of our lives, but especially in our work, we bring glory to God, people will notice. People will notice. Now, it's slightly difficult to understand, isn't it? Because he begins off saying, have ambition for a quiet life. But then he says, you know, you will get this reputation. What's going on there? Paul, it sounds like you're contradicting yourself. Well, no. Because I think ultimately, the reputation that he's speaking of is God's reputation. How we live, how we act, how we work. Yes, it reflects on us. But as people who bear his name, that then reflects on him. And we have a chance as Christians to, to paint two very different pictures of what it means to be people who have received grace. We could be people, the idle people, who think grace is all about take, 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 take isn't it? We could kind of say, oh, do you know what? Freeloaders, that's what those Christians are. They've understood that God is gracious to them, and then so they just bleed dry the one or two people in their church who are charitable. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to be lazy freeloaders. Now, that does not bring glory to God at all, does it? If that's our attitude to life and to work, that doesn't bring glory to God at all. But yet people who have received grace Know that they are right by God only because what he has done. And know that when we work hard, it is still ultimately God who gives us the results of that work. That we enjoy God's grace even when it's grace that we've worked hard for. Counterintuitive, but that's what Paul says. Let me ask you one question. What brings more glory to God? The people selected in acts to serve food at the tables to the widows or the apostles who devoted themselves to prayer and teaching? What brings more glory to God? I think if the apostles went around preaching gracelessly, lazily, I don't think that would bring glory to God even though they were preaching his name. People serving the tables, if they work hard and they do it for God, there's glory there. Let me ask you another question. In which portion of Jesus' life did he most glorify God? For the 20 years he served as an apprentice, carpenter, chiseling, hammering, sanding, varnishing, whatever Nazarene carpenters did. Or when he finally got to his proper work, yeah, okay, his proper work of going from town to town, healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Was he not glorifying God when he worked hard at the carpenter's bench? His whole life was to bring glory to the Father. We need to get rid of this sacred, secular divide in our minds and realize that actually, graciously, from God, we can work hard no matter where we are. And that can bring glory to God. And people will take notice of that and will glorify God through it. With Christ as the center of our lives, When God and his glory is what we live for, what a difference that makes. What a fantastic difference that makes. What a joy for us to know that we can glorify him, we can witness to him no matter what we're doing, if we do it for him and with a godly attitude. Well, that's it for another episode of our From the Archives podcast. We hope that you found it challenging and encouraging. And as always, we'd like to offer you a few quick next steps that you can take right now. 
If there's anything that you'd like to discuss or any questions that have been raised, please do contact us via email to contact at amphorchurch.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in the life of the church, make sure that you like us on Facebook. And lastly, why not check us out on YouTube, where you'll find additional teaching to complement our regular sermon podcast and our From the Archives podcast. Thanks for listening.